Okay. We have, next thing coming up due is the Solar Observations Project, which is due on Friday. Um, that is two parts. If you have not, many, many of you have turned in the earlier part that we did as a lab. If you did not turn that in and get credit for it, you can still turn it. Make sure you turn that in with it. And you'll either way turn it in with it. But if you didn't, I'll still give you credit for it up until here. Um, but if you wanted me to look at it, it's getting kind of late now. So if you want me to look, if you have it and you know, I haven't looked at it, I'll be happy to take a look at it today. But you won't get them back till Friday. So you know, if you have them and you want me to glance at them after class or anything, I can tell you where you are. Or you can always scan and email them to me. If you want me to take a look and tell you you're on the right track or you're way off, I want to catch you because that is, that whole project ends up being about ten, a little over 10% of your grade. So, you know, not doing it whew, crushes, crushes you all of a sudden. Or just having something really, ba really bad on it can make a big difference. Now, even if you didn't make observations, make sure you turn in the rest of the project because I have people who, you know, something came up, they couldn't make observations. They got two observations all semester. Okay, well, you tried something. You'll lose some points on that, but I give, gave you my numbers. You can still use those numbers. Do the graphs, do the calculations, do the, uh, do the analysis. You can do it based on my numbers just as, almost as well. You know, so you can still do the rest of the project. Don't say, well, I only made two observations. I'm not going to bother doing the project because all that's going to do is crush you. You know, a zero out of 100 and, what is it, like 105 points left on the project itself? I mean, that, that really will hurt. So make sure, make sure you do turn that in. Um, it's due the 30th, which is Friday. Meaning that, you, yes, you can turn it in through Saturday morning at 6 o'clock, as I've done with every other assignment. If you have trouble you know, scanning pictures or getting the graphs in, I have people who have turned in the graphs in class on Friday. They've given me their graphs and given me their data tables. And then we're finished up the text portion of it and sent, submitted that you know, by D2L later by the deadline. So if you don't or if you think you're going to have trouble getting the graphs, you know, make a copy of your graphs or something. Keep them so you have something to look at when you analyze. And then give me a copy in class, and I can always put them together afterwards. So you have that option as, option as well. Uh, and then don't forget on it, one thing I wanted to remind you is that the original write-up had a set of like four or five questions in it, which are supposed to be answered as part of your analysis. Make sure you go back and look at those and answer them, because that is about half of the analysis grade. So I have people who've done really good on everything else and did a decent analysis, but didn't mention the questions that I asked them to do. And you end up getting docked about 20 points, 20, 25 points on it. So make sure you go look at what those questions are and at least make an attempt to, to answer those as part of your write-up. The exam replacement, if you're going to do it, is due on <coughs> Friday, or Monday, sorry. It was due on Friday. I switched that to Monday, so you've actually got the weekend to do it after the observation project is due, if you're going to do that replacement. Again, that replaces one of your four exam grades. So if you do that, they'll take off your lowest exam grade and then replace it with whatever score you get here. Unless, of course, this happens to be your lowest score, in which case this will get dropped, so it won't hurt you doing it, you know, if you happen to get a lower score on that. Typically, though, people do, do relatively well if you put a little bit of, a little bit of work into those. Uh, quiz 7, we're done with. That's not your quiz 7. Let's get rid of that. Homework 8 is due on Friday. Quiz 8, a week from Friday. Quiz 8 is due a week from Friday, the la or is a week from Friday, the last day of class. Quiz 8, like our quiz 4, is in class. So it's actually a sheet here. And I'm, it's, it's meant to be a real easy quiz for everybody. So I like everybody to get 12 out of 12 on it. Um, I give you a list of 12 objects in the universe. And I ask you to put them in order of increasing distance from the sun. 
So the sun is the first one. The sun is the answer to number one. You put the sun in first. And then you work your way through. Basically, it's like I, if you're going to take an astronomy class, I hope that at the end you can at least list the planets in order. If nothing else, at least you can list. So I'm telling you what you're going to be looking for. That's exactly what the quiz will be. It'll have you know the eight planets, Mercury, Pluto, the sun, and I throw in a galaxy and a star. So you can put the star and the galaxy at the very end. So. And I, I usually, I hope everybody gets 12 out of 12. Yes, I have had places where somebody decided to put the star in between Jupiter and Saturn, so I don't, don't know exactly what went on there, but you know, it's happened. So, but it's meant to be 12 easy points. So if you know the planets in order, you've got time to look at them over the next week, you know, get those memorized, and then you just have to, you don't have to spell them or anything. I don't ask you to do that. I give you the list of objects. They're just in alphabetical order. You put them in distance order. So. So, meant to be an easy quiz. And then I did not, I did not, I did have one other thing. There is one more quiz up there. There is a fourth iTunes quiz that I'm going to put up. That'll make a total of 12 quizzes. I'm only grading you on 10. So, two quizzes get dropped. So, if you miss two quizzes, no big deal. Two, two, two zeros that are averaged into your grade right now will go away. If you don't want to take that last iTunes quiz, which will be this weekend, right before the final, you know, you don't have to worry about it. You can skip it and it's not going to hurt you. Can't, I mean, it won't hurt you at all, but it certainly can't hurt you in trying it. So it wouldn't hurt to go in and try. If you get a 10 and it knocks off a lower score, you might gain a point or two. If you get a 2 on it, well, it's going to get dropped and it doesn't matter. So it can't actually hurt you doing it. But there will be one more iTunes quiz in there. I'll put that up again next time. So, and then final exam, one week, two weeks, one week from today. No, no, not one week, from, two weeks from today. Um, right here, 9 o'clock, uh, two hours. Uh, Two-part exam, it's, half of it is your previous exam, so study your first four exams for the older material. The last part of it is the new material since the last exam. So everything we've done since exam four will be one new exam. The other ones will be questions from your previous exams. Many of them, in fact, the you know, half or more of them will be word for word from your previous exams. It's typically what I've ended up doing. Some of them may get you know, changed a little bit or adjusted based on anything. Anything I needed to adjust or if I just want to make something, you know, I don't, I don't want to make them all completely obvious. I might change true to false by changing a word or two. So make sure you do read the questions, but most of them will be right from the previous four tests. So you don't need to go back and restudy chapter two. All you need to do is the chapter two material that was on that exam, on the first exam. Chapter four material that was on the second exam, that's all you need to focus on. You don't need to go back and re-listen to lectures, reread the book, only look at the, for the new material, the only thing that won't be tested on an exam is that material that has been since the fourth exam. That'll be the new material. So I'll split it up sort of as two exams when I do it that. It'll be all in one booklet, but it'll be a two, sort of two exams in that, in that method. Questions? Two weeks from now, we'll be taking the final. Yeah. Two weeks and two hours from now, it'll be over. By that afternoon, I expect to have by Wednesday. You should have every, you'll ha you'll get everything back at the exam. I should I will have all of this graded. I don't know how much I'll have it graded by Friday, on some of it, but I will have everything graded by Wednesday, and I expect that final grades will be up and posted by Wednesday, you know, afternoon, late afternoon to early evening, depending on when I get everything done. But certainly by Thursday morning, you'll have grades. But I'm I'm going to guess I'll probably. Unless I have anything else I don't know about on Wednesday that I have scheduled, I will just stay here, grade the exams, put final grades up, and be done. So you'll, be, you'll, ha you'll know your grade if you want to go look on D2L, if you want to just be surprised when 
they come, you can always do that as well. But they will be up Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, barring any unexpected snowstorms, etc. All right, picture of the day for today then is Jupiter. And some nice images of Jupiter. Several different ones taken over a couple nights about, what is that, about two weeks, a week and a half ago. The 16th and 17th, 10, 11 days ago. And these were taken from the Earth, so these are not taken from anything close to Jupiter. They were actually taken here from the Earth with a good sized telescope, but not a big professional telescope, not a two meter telescope or three meter. This was actually, looks like a Celestron 14 would be a 14 inch telescope. So something near about a foot across. Not a gigantic one, but you get some really nice images with a good, even with a good small telescope, Jupiter is nice and beautifully visible. You can see a lot of the banding structure. You can see the great red spot starting off up there. And you can see how quick Jupiter is rotating. There it is, there it is, there it is. Here it's hiding off the edge. Here it's, scroll it over, it's gone. It's actually moved around the edge just over the course of this night when this uh, amateur was taking these pictures. The other objects you see there, you see a nice dark spot on Jupiter, which is actually a shadow of the moon Io. Io was the closest moon to Jupiter. And you see its shadow cast right there, a big shadow cast on Jupiter. Here, here, here. You can even just see it starting to nick the edge a little bit there. So as Io passes in front of Jupiter, it casts a shadow on Jupiter, much the way our own moon does for us. So this would be if you were living in Jupiter's atmosphere and you happened to be in the path where this shadow came, you'd actually see a solar eclipse. Io would pass in front of the sun, block it out, and you would not see sunlight for a period of time until Io had moved out of the way. So you'd actually get a solar, that would be the position of a solar eclipse on Jupiter. Jupiter would have the advantage of having many more solar eclipses than us because it's got many more moons. It's got a lot of big, lot of good sized moons that can actually block out the sun and give us eclipses. In this case, we're just seeing one, just seeing one of them. But some very nice images, and again, they don't, like a lot of the images, they don't project near as well as you can see on, the, on a higher resolution screen. You get a lot of detail, a lot of the structures, and you can see a lot of the storm the storms and the turbulence that exist in Jupiter's atmosphere. And that's pretty good considering that, again, you're looking through the Earth's atmosphere and you're looking five astronomical units away. So compared to what we've been talking about here, that's nothing, right? But still, five astronomical units. If we want to send a space probe to Jupiter, it takes years to get there. So it's not something we can just go zip out to very quickly. And Jupiter is nice, I should say, nicely visible right now. It's approaching what we call opposition. It's opposite the sun in the sky, meaning sun sets, Jupiter rises at about the same time. So a couple hours after sunset, Jupiter gets up nice and high in the sky and very bright and easy to see. If you recognize the constellation of Orion, Jupiter is a little bit above and to the right of Orion as you're out looking. So we see a very bright object up there. It's actually in the constellation of Taurus. So actually if you go and look at, let me see. Let me go back one. There it is. That was yesterday's picture. There is Jupiter. And you can see Orion's off down here, and this is Taurus. You can see all that, right? You recognize all those stars? Here. See if we can. There we go. Here. Do it the easy way. There's Orion kind of hiding off the bottom. Unfortunately, you can't do that on the sky. Now, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be nice if you go out and do that on the sky? But there's Jupiter right in the middle of 
of Taurus, of Taurus here. So Taurus is here, there's Orion, so up above and to the right of Orion you're going to see Jupiter, but it's the brightest object there. I mean, it'll, it'll be brighter than any star in Taurus, Aldebaran being the brightest, it's significantly brighter, it's going to be brighter than any of the stars in Orion. So the brightest object you're seeing out there, if you look up and above Orion, as long as it's not a plane flying through, which you'd notice will be gone in a little bit, but it will, will be Jupiter. So, and nicely visible in the evening, it'll be nicely visible for the next couple of, couple of months. Alright, so, show that, show that one there. Actually, there are, if you have you know, a smartphone or an iPad or something, there actually are programs you can get that will do this for you. So you can hold them up to the sky and what is that? And it'll actually sort of use its own uh, GPS and uh, navigate exact, tell you exactly what you're, see, what you're seeing in the sky, which is kind of nice to be able to try to point, point things out and identify things a little bit better. All right. Questions? Questions? All righty. We were talking about the Big Bang, so let me do, I had one couple minute video I was going to show you first because kind of a little introduction to this, so let me go ahead and get that set first before we go back into the, into the slides. If there's all these other universes out there, then you know, we're just one tiny little planet within this, within that, you know, we're, we're really, we're really nothing. So, but what I like on that question, yeah? I have not seen that one, no. I'll have to check. It's really neat. They discuss all different theories mm -hmm. about uh, the Big Bang and the rotation. Some people have some out there. Oh, yeah. There's some, there are some very interesting ideas. And who know, the thing is, you never know which ones are going to end up being, being correct or not because some of those wacky ideas that were wacky ideas you know, hundreds of years ago are now you know, perfectly normal things. So. Good. I'll have, to, I'll have to check for that one. But the idea that I like that she goes through in that, in that clip is really that gives you that idea that the Big Bang, I mean, you think of it as an explosion. I mean, that ten, tends to be the concept of it, but it really was the creation of everything. So you don't think of it as an explosion, well, what's exploding into space. It's just, it's actually the creation of everything all at once. So you're making space. There was no space, there was no time before the Big Bang. You know, our None of our physical laws apply when you get to the conditions that existed at the instant of that, of the Big Bang. So it's not that it was matter and energy just being created, it was everything. It was all space, all time was all created at once during this explosion. The other thing that I mentioned up on here is that if you trace those galaxies back, we said everything is expanding outward. That means you could go back in time, you know, rewind it mentally. These galaxies are expanding outward. They're getting further and further away. That means at some point they must have been closer together, right? Last year they were a little bit closer. Could we measure that difference? Nah, it's too small. But, you know, over billions of years they'd be closer and closer together. It means you trace them back. Eventually they were all in one spot. All the material was in one point in the universe. So the Big Bang was really an explosion that occurred everywhere at once. It wasn't at any specific spot. It wasn't that things were expanded. You know, it's not the explosion isn't going out there and running into new things. There's nothing else beyond what the universe is. There would be nothing unless with their theory, you know, maybe there's another universe. Maybe there's all these different bubbles of universes out there where each of them with their own super giant super clusters of galaxies and voids which go down to, you know, clusters of galaxies to individual galaxies to cl star clusters to individual stars to planets to us to, you know, get, getting us back getting us back into our into our place.
So Big Bang, trying to think about the Big Bang, and you may have heard of this one, you know, using a balloon to try to explain the Big Bang. Uh, if you take a balloon and stick some coins to it, why stick coins to it and not just draw on it, right? Just draw something on it. Well, actually the coins are done for a reason. Because when you think about the expansion of the universe, if you draw something on a balloon and then blow it up, it gets stretched out too. And in the expansion of the universe, the galaxies don't get any bigger. Okay? The, ga- you know, the Milky Way galaxy is not expanding apart as part of the expansion of the universe. It's bound together gravitationally and it holds together. It's the space between the galaxies that is actually getting larger. So if I actually drew galaxies on here, which is one way to do it, you have to kind of take that into account that the galaxies really aren't changing in size. And if you make the universe go from this size and make it three times bigger, the galaxy didn't go, grow by that same amount. So that's one of the reasons this is done with coins, just to say, well, nothing's changing in size. They're staying the same, same size. But if you do that and you start it at some small level and you get them bigger and blow it bigger, all the galaxies are further away from each other. Doesn't matter whether you're this galaxy here or this galaxy here or this galaxy here. If you measure how far apart, how far away all these other galaxies are from anyone, choose which one you want to be in, they've all gotten further away as the universe expands. And the further ones away are actually getting away faster and faster. So you're seeing sort of an indirect view of Hubble's, Hubble's law there. But there is, it sort of comes about, again, we're going to be working with this, giving you these ideas through different dimensions. And I use the surface of a balloon because it's something we can imagine. We can imagine a two-dimensional surface of a balloon expanding into a third dimension. If we think about it in space, it gets a little bit harder because you have to imagine three-dimensional space expanding into a fourth dimension. Okay. I can't twist my mind around it either, so if you can't, don't worry about it. I, can't, I, cannot, I cannot imagine that other dimension. You know, Mathematically, I can see it, but I can't physically imagine you know, exactly what it's like. So that's why we always like to go down a dimension to try to explain it because you can imagine this and it makes sense. And just think of the universe as this great big balloon that can expand forever. There's no popping. The universe isn't going to get so big and pop or anything. But you can expand it and get it larger. But if you imagine, you know, where is the center of expansion on the balloon? Is there a, you're stuck on the surface of the balloon. You can't go anyplace else. Where's the center? There is none. It's in another dimension. Yeah, if you can go in that third dimension, right? If you can go down there, then there's a center to the universe. Then there's a center to that balloon. But if you're stuck on this surface of the balloon, which is like us being stuck in our three-dimensional universe in a much larger dimensional universe, there is no center. So the explosion, the expansion occurs everywhere simultaneously. There is no center. There is no spot where you can say, well, here's the center where everything is expanding from. That's off. Again, well inside this balloon, you're stuck, to the, you're stuck on the surface. There is also no edge to it. Right? If this universe is like a balloon, there's no edge to it either. I can walk around as far as I want to. If I'm stuck to the surface of that balloon, just like on the Earth, right? there's no edge. I can keep walking around. I'm not going to fall off the edge of the Earth. If I could, you know, ignore the oceans, right? If I could walk on water and just walk straight across and walk like a complete circle of the Earth, I'd come right back here again. Take a while, you'd miss the final, all that good stuff, but you know, I could do it and walk straight around. Well, you could do, possibly do the same thing in the universe, that means. Travel off in one direction, and if you could travel long enough, you'd come back around. Now that's depending if this is the shape of the universe, and we're going to look at that in a little bit. You know, what is the shape of the universe? Something like a sphere is one possibility. But again, 
it's a sphere when we take it down a dimension. So it's not just a sphere, meaning that it's a sphere, but it's a sphere in four dimensions, or well, some of them go up to like 11 and 12 or multiple dimensions now. So many more, but it's a sphere type shape in that, in that much larger dimension. So just like a circle would be a sphere in two dimensions, right? Go start off with a circle, be the smallest thing you get. To expand that to three dimensions, you get a sphere, and then you can get a hypersphere as you go up into a fourth dimension and you know much bigger objects. So I'm always going to be explaining it you know, one dimension downwards just because we can comprehend that a little bit better. I, I can wrap my head around expa- a balloon, expanding balloon. It's very hard to wrap your head around an expanding space. And imagining space expanding into something that we can't see. Right? We can't just go to the edge of space and see what's just beyond it. What are we expanding into? It's in another dimension. It's not something we can even look at, we'll ever be able to see. Just as some little creature confined on one of these coins can't look any other direction other than here or here or here, can only look in this, one di- in this dimension, can't see outside of the can't see outside of that balloon. So they can't see where they're expanding into. You can't look out you know, this direction. And that's where we're stuck with our own, with our own universe. Now, it also can explain what we call the re- cosmological redshift. So think of that as the surface of a balloon. Now this one we actually do expand. This, one, this is the one you want to draw on. If you draw a wavelength on the surface of a balloon, and you blow it up and get it bigger and bigger and bigger, it stretches out the wavelength. So the wavelength can be going from blue into red wavelength in terms of size. Won't physically change the color if you do that on a balloon, but in space it will. When space expands with real light, as it stretches out those wavelengths, the original wavelengths that formed billions of years ago in the the Big Bang explosion would have been extremely high energy. I mean, that's an, immense, that's an immense explosion. So, would have formed X-rays and gamma rays and all that very intense energy. Over time, those have, the universe has expanded and all that energy that formed 14 billion years ago has been stretched out. So you'd stretch it out, it would go from X, from gamma rays to X-rays to ultraviolet to visible to infrared, way out into the radio part of the spectrum. So over 14 billion years, the universe has expanded enough to actually stretch out the wavelengths of light that were formed during that Big Bang. All that energy that was released that was gamma rays, I mean it was intense energy, very highest energies we can possibly imagine, have now been all stretched out. Now, if we really want to understand it, we got to go through general relativity and all sorts of group theory and some fun stuff there. We're not doing it, don't worry about it. I'm not going to give you the full equations of general relativity that Einstein did to be able to understand, try to able to understand it. But some of it we can go over, some of it we're able to understand a little bit using some simpler ideas. So I'm going to try to give you sort of a, not def- a very definitely not a mathematical view of it. You, d- you don't want to go through that. You could do pages upon pages of equations trying to look at the material. but. We can also give you some ideas of what this means, of what comes out of those equations we can understand. So I can give you some ideas of what the explanation means of, those, of what, they, what they mean. And that's what I'm going to try to go through here. So, what can happen to the universe? Well, we know it's expanding. So that's something we have uh, over people, you know, 
a hundred years ago where it wasn't known for sure, it wasn't known what was going on with the universe. Was it expanding? Was what was going on? We didn't really have all those measurements that we made now, have now. So we know it's expanding and that means it has two choices. It can keep expanding forever. If we launch a rocket from the earth with enough speed, it escapes from the earth and it's got enough, it can keep traveling out forever. It can be traveling fast enough that the earth's gravity will never be able to slow it down. It could expand out forever. Voyager 2 is on the way, right? Voyager 1, Voyager 2 were launched from the Earth. They've traveled out through the solar system. They're out towards the very edge of our solar system right now. And they're going to keep going forever. Come back in a billion years and find out how far they've traveled zipping through the universe. The other thing that could happen is it could collapse back down. It could stop expanding. If there's enough gravity in the universe, enough material to keep it from expanding, we could start eventually if we sent that object up with not quite enough energy, we sent one of the spacecraft up, it might travel out into the atmosphere and turn around and come back down. Might get a little bit further, might still come back down. If we don't give it enough energy, it will collapse back down. So it dep all depends on how it's expanding and how much mass exists in the universe. Now, for, for right now, we have to assume that the only force that is involved is gravity. So again, we're looking at Einstein's equations without looking at Einstein's equations. So it's all what comes out of his equations and how we explain what we're able to see. So the only meaningful force that we know of over those large distances is gravity. The other forces that exist in nature, two of them work only at the subatomic or nuclear level. They don't mean much on very large scales. Uh, the other one is the electromagnetic force does work on very large scales, but it works too well that it neutralizes everything. So you're not going to have a positively charged planet and a negatively charged planet attracting each other because any deviations you get from neutral, neutral objects are quickly wiped out. So the universe tends to be very neutral. So really the only force that matters and what's going to happen to the universe depends on its density. How many stars are there? How many galaxies are? How much dark matter is there? And is there enough material in the universe to cause it to stop expanding? And that's what we're looking at the possibility. So here's what happens. A little bit of a graph. There's your Big Bang. Here we are right now. So what's going to happen? We have a low density universe. Big Bang occurred back here someplace. Boom. It's expanding out forever. The distances are going to keep getting greater and greater and greater and it never stops. It's never going to flip over and come back down. If you have a higher density universe, then there's the Big Bang. We're still at the same point right now and it's going to conti would continue to expand. Again, that might be billions of years from now and then it would start to collapse. Eventually, you'd slow down the galaxies. The galaxies are receding from us at very high speeds. They would slow down. Eventually they'd stop. If you stop and there's a gravitational force, right? all of a sudden you're pulling back down. So you'd be pulling the objects back down together and it would ultimately collapse. So big bang here. If this is the case, then big crunch. Everything smashes back down, back down together. And, well let's see, we're at 14 billion years here. So you're probably talking, you know, 40, 50 billion years from now. So, won't affect the final exam. Other than there might be questions about it on there. So, that's what's going to happen. It really depends on the density. So how much matter is there in the universe? Do we have a lot of mass or do we have a little bit of mass? We know that based on our regular matter, 
this stuff, you know, all the stuff we're made up of and the earth is made up of and the planets and the stars, the hydrogen, the helium, you know, all the elements in the periodic table, we know that that there's not even close to enough mass to account for closing the universe, to account for cause it to collapse back down. Not even close. It comes down to things like dark matter and dark energy, which we'll be looking at today and on Friday, to try to be able to explain that. So, two options, but the universe can actually have three, um, three different shapes. So the different shapes can be a closed universe, which is like a sphere. Again, we're going down a dimension. You can have a flat universe, which is more like a piece of paper. Right? Flat piece of paper, flat universe, completely flat universe. Or it can be an open universe. And that would be, that's, I'll show you in a minute, that's like a, sa- a saddle shaped. So, shaped like a horse saddle. A saddle. So those are our three different, those are the three different possibilities. This is what the universe can be. So this is the high density, it's got a very high density, then it is able to be collapsed back in on itself. So it'll eventually collapse. This is a low density. That expands forever. This one is what we call, it's just the exact, the exact borderline. It's what we call the critical density. And that also expands forever. So, expands forever but just barely. It just makes it. So, after an infinite amount, everything slows down. There's just enough gravity to stop everything after an infinite amount of time. So, not a trillion years, not ten trillion years, not a quadrillion, you know. But after an infinite amount of time, everything would stop after you'd gone an infinite amount of time. So it's really just if you're exactly on the border between these two. The higher the density, the quicker it collapses. So if you have a really high density, then it collapses even faster. If you have a very low density, it slows things down even less, and it will expand forever and keep expanding at an even faster rate. The more gravity there is, the more material there is, the more it slows down. So three possibilities for what the universe could look like. Two of them expand forever, one collapses back in. Now what we see, I think we'll show those here. So closed universe is like a sphere. Um, On a sphere, geometry doesn't work, right? Geometry always hear that angles add up to 180 degrees. Angles of a triangle add up to 180 degrees, right? Probably had that back back in high school or a geometry class somewhere. So typically, that's what you're used to in flat space. If you draw, but if you draw a triangle on the surface of a sphere, all of a sudden the angles don't add up to 180 degrees. In fact, you can, on a sphere, you can make an angle with three right angles. You can make a triangle with three right angles. Right? Go from the North Pole down to the equator, North Pole down to the equator. Every single one of those could be a right angle. Your triangle could actually have 270 degrees. And that's part of the reason that, you know, on a sphere, you know, the straightest path, the shortest path between two points isn't necessarily a straight line. 
Well, yes, it is technically the straightest, but if you're confined, not if you're confined to the surface of the sphere. Yes, the quickest way to get from uh, Los Angeles to London would be a straight line. That straight line would involve burrowing under the United States and under the Atlantic Ocean and coming out in London. You're leaving the surface of the sphere. If you stay on the surface of the sphere and you're going to fly, essentially, you're still staying on the surface even though you're a little bit above it, but if you're going to fly from Los Angeles to London, if you've ever done an international trip, you don't fly straight. You don't fly from Los Angeles straight to London. You always go up over you know, you go up here, in this case, you go up over Canada and Greenland. It seems like you're going way out of the way. But you're not. You're actually going quicker. If you make a flight from, you know, New York to Tokyo, you actually fly up over Alaska. Seems like you're going way out of the way. But that's the shortest route on a sphere. That would actually be the shortest route when you're confined to the surface of the sphere. Yeah, if you could dig that great tunnel down through the, down through the Earth, and we're not taking just, you know, under the surface of the Earth, but a straight line underneath. So you're digging down thousands of kilometers, much more than we could possibly do. Yeah, you'd probably want to go that way, but not something you can do when you're confined to the surface. So on a, on a sphere, you're going to get the angles are greater than 180 degrees. The other possibility, well, we looked at a flat, flat universe. Flat universe would be like a piece of paper. That's everything we understand. If you've got a triangle, they add up to 180 degrees. Straight lines are straight lines, right? Straight lines are not curved as we get on a sphere. The other possibility is a negative. We call a negative curvature or a saddle shape. So, looks like a you know, saddle of a horse. Uh, the other example you could give is you know a, a Pringle. Right? It's the same kind of same general kind of shape as that. It doesn't have an edge to it in, a, in as much as it's not closed in on itself as the sphere is. It's wide open. If you add, draw a triangle on a shape like that. With the shortest distances, your straight line being the shortest distance between two points, you're actually going to get the sum of your angles less than 180 degrees. So I didn't add those up here. Let's do a triangle would have 180 degrees, not 18 degrees, 180 degrees. Triangle would be 180 degrees, would be less than 180 degrees if you add up the three angles. would be greater than 180 degrees. So again, all the different geometries, all it depends on. The only thing that matters in here is how much matter there is in the universe. The more matter, high matter, high density, a lot of matter, you're up here. Low density, very little matter, you're down here. And tells us what will happen, you know, what will the ultimate fate of the universe be, depends on that shape. Now. I mentioned this a little bit. Okay, we can walk around the surface of the Earth, ignore the fact that there's, you know, oceans there in the way. But if you could just walk, start in one spot and walk, and keep walking in one direction and never change, you'll come back to the same spot. Might take you a little while to do that trip, but you could do it. You could walk straight across, <coughs> straight around the Earth, and you're going to come right back where you started from. Well, same thing in the universe. You, know, you shine, a, shine a light ray or travel off in one direction in the universe, travel in a straight line, keep going exactly the same direction. It's going to take you a long time. The universe is a very big place, but eventually you can come right back where you started. If it has this kind of shape, if you're in a closed universe. If you're in an open universe or a flat universe, that doesn't happen. That would only work in a closed universe. So you could send that signal out in one direction and you could receive it from the other direction. Acknowledging that it's going to take, you know, 
You can't get, you're not going to get it tomorrow. You're not going to get it next week. You're not going to get it 100 years from now. It's going to take, it bill, take signals billions of years to travel, you know, to circumnavigate the universe. Unlike circumnavigating the globe, it's going to take you billions upon billions of years to do that. But if the universe is closed, does have enough density, that would be what would happen. You'd actually be able to come back to your starting point. So, density. It all depends on the density. What is, how much matter is there in the universe? Now we can add up some of that easily, right? We can see, we can see stars, we can see galaxies, we can measure their masses using Kepler's laws. So we can actually measure those, figure out how much mass there is, how much mass is there in a galaxy. Well, we can, there's measurements we can do to make a measure it and get an actual value. So if we add up everything that we see, all the galaxies, all the stars, all the clusters, galaxy clusters, everything. And add that up, even adding in, you know, what do we see? We see gas clouds, something we can only see in the radio because they're so cold, right? Well, we can still add all that in. There's things that are visible. So when we say luminous matter, it doesn't mean necessarily glowing bright like the sun, but luminous is something that we can detect. Well, we've only got a couple percent of what we need. If you want to have a closed universe, Averaging up everything we see, all the planets, all the stars, all the galaxies, all the dust clouds, everything that we can possibly observe anywhere in the universe through any of those methods, you've got a couple percent of the total amount of mass that you need to have a universe that is closed or in this spherical type shape. But we're not adding in the dark matter yet. We know there is a lot of dark matter. Is there enough? Is there enough dark matter to change this into this? Or you know, trying to figure out what we're trying to figure out is exactly where we are. You know, where do we exist on this spectrum? <coughs> we're somewhere in here. The density is somewhere between these two. So how much dark matter is there? If we look at all the dark matter, and remember we figured this out, we looked at the rotation curves of galaxies. We said there had to be extra dark matter in a galaxy because the, ro the way it rotated was wrong. It rotated. The stars rotated much too fast as you got towards the edge of the galaxy. If we look at all of the ones to bind clusters of galaxies together, we said the galaxies move too fast within their clusters, that if there weren't more matter there to increase the gravity, that the clusters would fly apart over hundreds of millions or billions of years and there wouldn't be any galaxy clusters anymore. So if we add all that, we talked about gravitational lensing. As we look at these distant quasars, we can learn something about the material between us and those quasars. Okay, now we've increased. We've increased it. We've gone from a couple percent to about 30 percent, about, thir about a third of it. So we're still way off in this stretch, not even close to a flat universe. We're way over in the open. Even adding in all of the dark matter that we, that we don't see, but that we see gravitational effects of. So we see those gravitational effects. We can measure it. We can add some more matter into the universe. We're up to about 30% of what we need if we want a flat or a closed universe. So looks like right now, based on all of that, that we're in a very open, open universe. Part of the problem is that measurements we make all the measurements we make tend to give us a very flat universe. Different measurements seem to say we're very close to a flat universe and we're not that wide open as the measurements of matter see. Other measurements we make seem to say we're very close to being a flat universe. You know, could it go a little bit either one way or the other? Yes, but it seems like we're sort of stuck in this area on other measurements. 
So it's sort of a confusion there. Why are we getting our, the matter we're seeing? We're not seeing near enough matter, but other measurements tell us, well, we're very close to a flat universe. So just based on the matter and the dark matter that we know of that we can actually measure gravitationally, it looks like we're a very open universe. Now, open universe, what does that mean? That means things expand forever. So it's a matter of the universe will eventually end one way or another. And there's sort of two deaths here. Okay? This is sort of the, this is the cool one, right? This is where things stop, stop expanding and come back and collapse and, you know, death by fire. Everything comes back in and there's a big collapse of the universe down into, you know, a single point again. So make the entire universe a black hole. The other one, if the universe expands forever, that's the death by ice. Okay? It's just getting, everything gets further and further apart. The galaxies get further away. Galaxy collisions get much less likely. The stars slowly fade out over billions and trillions of years. You know, the stars slowly disappear. Eventually, you don't have any gas to form new stars, so there's no blue stars. All they're gone. Eventually, star, all the stars like the sun are gone. Finally, if you go trillions of years, you know, even the smallest stars would be gone. All you'd be left with is a very cold, dead universe with lots of black holes, neutron stars, white dwarfs, black dwarfs, but that would be it. You'd have no more stars left anymore, brown dwarfs. You'd have nothing else left anymore. So, so why we're looking at I mean, does it make any difference? Not really, because whatever's going to happen, it's sort of cool to know, but it's well outside the expanse of our lifetime. Neither of these is going to come close to happening you know, in anybody's lifetime or in even multiple generations we can think of. You're talking about many billions or trillions of years for them to occur. But it's interesting to know what would happen. So we're looking a little bit more at the measurements. And we've talked a little bit about type 1 supernovae, right? Type 1 supernovae are the old, new, old uh, white dwarf star that got too much mass, became unstable and blew itself apart. Went over that limit, which was 1.4 times the mass of the sun. So, got too massive, blew itself apart in a supernova explosion. Now, if we measure these type 1 supernovae, they give us the distances. We can measure the distances to these galaxies and we can learn about how far away these distant galaxies are. So, what we expect is the universe is decelerating. It's slowing down. Which makes perfect sense to us. If things are expanding and gravity is the only force acting, then eventually, you know, I throw the pen up, it'll come back down. Whether it'll come back down, but it's always slowing down. Even on the way up to the top, it's going slower and slower every instant. So we would expect everything to be going slower. The galaxies would have been receding more rapidly in the past. If we look at these very distant galaxies, they should have been moving faster than we would otherwise expect because we're seeing them in the distant past when things were expanding before they'd had time to slow down. More nearby galaxies looking more recently, okay, they would be slowing down. They would be moving even a little bit slower. So, again, we'd see a little bit of a difference. If we're looking back in time, we would expect that if we make these measurements of the very distant galaxies, that the furthest galaxies would be working would be receding faster than they otherwise would. They've been slowing. They've, over those few billion years, they've had time to have slowed down. So if we could see them right now, they'd be going a little bit slower. What we actually find is something different. 
as something that is really quite, quite amazing. The universe should be decelerating. It's not. Based on our measurements, the universe is actually accelerating, meaning that it's actually expanding apart faster now than it was when it originally started. Goes in the face of everything we think of in terms of gravity. You know, what kind of anti-gravity is pushing things apart that is stronger than gravity? So what is actually stronger there that is actually occurring? What is actually pushing the universe apart? You see a whole bunch of measurements that have been made here. And if you look at all of these, the straight line here goes up with a static universe not changing. The one towards the right, the reddish line, is a decelerating universe. The one towards this side, the black line, is an accelerating universe. And there's a couple observations early on that sort of go on the decelerating sides, but there's a very overwhelming number of observations that seem to be pointing towards an accelerating universe. The little images inset here are actually pictures of some of these supernovae. So, you know, before and after image, there's the galaxy, extremely distant galaxy. There is the supernova. Galaxy, supernova, galaxy here, supernova. But everything looks like now, instead of the universe decelerating, which is really what you'd expect. Gravity is always pulling things down, always trying to slow them down, and should be. There must be some other force, something else going on, some kind of pressure, something that's pushing the universe apart faster than gravity is trying to slow it down, because it sure looks like the universe is not is it, you know, not just open, which meant that it's slowing down, but slowing down not, is not fast enough to stop it, but it's actually accelerating and expanding faster and faster over time. Let me see what's, am I, let me go ahead and, I'm going to go ahead and stop there because I don't want to get into the next, I don't want to get into the next one in the last minute or so that we have here. So I'm going to stop there, give you something to, give you something to think about till Friday. I know, you'll forget about it when you walk out the door. But give you something to think about there, and then I'll come back and try to give you a little bit more of the explanation as to what we think is going on here on, on Friday. So do not forget, don't forget the Solar Observation Project due Friday. Again, I will put a Dropbox up on D2L so you can submit it there as well. But if you need to turn anything in in paper, you want to turn it in on Friday.